0: Hello and welcome back to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh, And today I am joined by my friend, Professor Emeritus of Harvard Business School, Richard Tedlow. And we're going to be talking about one of the most famous business people in the world, somebody who fits the bill of a charismatic leader to a T for better or worse. And that is Elon Musk. So Richard, Talk to me about Elon Musk. You have the entire perspective of business history in your mind. Where does he stand? Where are the similarities, the differences? To what
1: extent is he of a type and to what extent is he sui generis? Um, well, first of all, let me say it's delightful to be back uh, doing another podcast. And um, uh, this is a remarkable man in, in so many different dimensions. He... Um, you know, you can, you can draw certain comparisons between him and others, uh, by which I mean, you know, he taught himself basic, uh, um, uh, and, and came to love computer programming. Uh, and there there are reasons for that. And he also has, I mean, if you look at Tesla anyway, in my opinion, a hell of a sense of style. So, um, there, there's, that would be the jobs part of him, the style part of him, and the basic part, the technology part, would be the Gates part of him. So you can say to some degree that he's a, he, he, he's a combination of the two. Um, he's, uh, you know, unique in that he's, one of Jobs' great uh, talents, and one, of, and one of the things he insisted upon when he was running Apple was focus. And uh, this man is involved in so many different enterprises. Uh, in addition to Tesla, which, in my opinion, is by far the most interesting and most important, but we can talk about that. There's SpaceX. There's Solar City, which Tesla has bought. There's the Hyperloop. Uh, there's Neuralink. There's the Boring Company. There's OpenAI. I mean, it's a that's a long list. This, this, in other words, is a busy man, and um, so. Uh, He's a jack of all trades and master of all, it would appear. And certainly not
0: without controversy either. I mean, his entire career has featured in the press quite prominently, for better or worse.
1: Well, that's certainly true. Um, And a lot of the controversy which he has um, uh, generated has been uh, unforced errors. I think it was in 2018 when he, he, he tweeted to, at the time, 20, more than 22 million followers, taking Tesla private at 420, is my recollection, funding secured. Uh, I think it was something like that. That is correct. It was
0: definitely 420, because that is apparently a reference to a common trope involving marijuana, which he has been known to partake in during podcasts.
1: Well, uh, yes, I saw him actually partake in it because I saw the Joe Rogan uh, experience in which he appeared. Uh, so uh, the problem with that was that uh, he wasn't taking it private and, and the funding wasn't secured. So what he taught the world and all his employees and all his customers and everybody was that he lies. And you know I'm not sure exactly how that benefits anybody Uh, So anyway, he wound up the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, fined him $10 million and fined the company, Tesla, $10 million. He paid that $10 million, and his one comment was worth it. Uh, Well, I I don't get it. And then relatively recently, I think it was the 1st of May, he said, I think Tesla's stock is overpriced. And the stock dropped like, you know, between 10 and 13% that day. These are not statements that a a traditional executive in a traditional company would make. And why he goes out of his way to to say these things when it's utterly unnecessary, um, you'll have to explain to me because I don't get it. Well, you know, one of the things you have to wonder is if he has
0: become a little too taken with his own myth. So he, in fact, paid some amount of money to appear in, I believe it was Iron Man 2, because the character of Tony Stark, the billionaire playboy, playboy philanthropist, always getting in trouble because of his own cleverness, is a character he really identified with, and many people consider him the real life Tony Stark. Something which I believe he
1: encourages. Well, I've heard that too, um, uh, and you know, I I don't I, I I don't know enough about Tony Stark to comment on it, but he he certainly uh, put it this way. I mean. One of the, one of the characteristics of the charismatic person, charismatic personality is they, we've said this before, so I'm repeating myself, but they, they take, um, the relationship that they have with their employees out of the economic realm and into the sociological or social realm. Uh, they make meaning, not just money, although he's certainly made plenty of money. I mean, he's, uh, I think he's, He's estimated to have something like thirty billion dollars now, or forty, or 50. as a result of the continued increase in
0: Tesla's stock price, he is currently sitting just under fifty billion dollars in net worth. Thank
1: you. Um, by the way, Tesla today uh, uh, surpassed Toyota in market capitalization.
0: Then he is likely over fifty billion dollars,
1: which is incredible. I mean, uh, on a on a, uh, on a on a on a on an auto production. Uh, on a per car basis, their market capital, I mean, they've got Tesla has a market share in the United States of under 2%. um, And and they've got a market capitalization of, uh, I think it's $207 billion today. And Toyota, I think is $202 billion. And the others like Ford and General Motors and, you know, Fiat Chrysler are groveling down at 24, 36 and 20 billion. So Tesla, you know despite the fact that jd power i don't know if you noticed this just came out with a survey and uh, tesla did not rate well i think they rated last that's right uh, uh, on on quality but the quality that they rated last on was basically fit and finish it wasn't uh, that the batteries were exploding or that the uh, you know that the um, that something essential to your safety was uh, going awry nevertheless this it's not good news but and also, it should be stated that he was not the um, the founder of Tesla. Uh, it was founded by uh, two uh, men named Eberhard and Tarpenning. Uh, he worked with Eberhard for a while and said, this is a quote, he is literally the worst person I've ever worked with, end quote. That was recent that he said that. I mean, why go out of your way to say something like that? Uh, Tesla was founded in July of 03, Um And its profitability has been, you know, now and again, in a quarter, it shows a profit. But they've lost a lot of money over the years. And, you know, that's like 17 years ago, it was founded. Uh, And nevertheless, they have a market capitalization of $207 billion. So a lot of people think that um, they're the future of of automobiles. And and, uh, they may be. Uh, he was involved with the first uh, Series uh, Series A round of funding of Tesla, and soon after that, he became chairman of the board, and by 2008, basically, he had taken the firm over. 2008 was um, the year of the panic, and, and Tesla's survival was in some question at that point. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't say it's survival is in question now, although there's so many things that are, we're in the midst of so many crises as a country right now, that it's hard to make any kind of of prediction. But anyway, the company right now, you know, you you couldn't ask for more right at the moment. And this is the remarkable thing
0: about Elon Musk. Like Icarus, he has flown close to the sun repeatedly. But unlike Icarus, he has somehow come away from his near-death experiences more powerful, more well-regarded, more admired than before. And this is something that really feels like it's unprecedented in the history of business. Almost always, these stories end with a fall due to the hubris. And as of yet, he has not fallen, although the day is young.
1: It is. Uh, his, he's, um, he was born in um, uh, 1971. So, yeah, I mean, he may have 30 good years ahead of him. Who knows? And um, uh, the, the, the story isn't told. When, when, when Andrew Carnegie, back in the 19th century, uh, I won't go into detail here, at the Homestead strike, uh, he acted in a way that was uh, directly contrary to the principles that he had uh, written about. And Joseph Pulitzer wrote in the New York World, count no man happy until he is dead, because here's Carnegie proving to the world that he was a hypocrite. Uh, so I don't know, I mean, uh, what the end point is going to be. I do know that uh, this is a man whose ambitions are staggeringly uh, impressive and have been from the beginning. When he was young, a matter of fact, when he was in college, he went to Queen's University in, um, uh, in Ontario and then to University of Pennsylvania, where he got two degrees, one in economics from Wharton and one in, um, uh, I think, physics uh, and then he came to Stanford and uh, was going to be, uh, was going to take a, a, a graduate course, in some, some kind of uh, program in combination of physics, I think, and AI. And he didn't last because he caught FOMO immediately, uh, you know, fear of missing out. And he, uh, uh, he and his brother Kimball, he has a brother and a sister, Tosca, who's a filmmaker, Passion Flicks is what she was the name of her company. Uh, he uh, started a company called uh, uh, Zip2, and that was bought by Compaq in February of 99 for $370 million. He owns 7% of that. So, from a standing start, I mean, his first time out, he makes a lot of money. And then he co founds a company called X.com. Uh, this merged with Confinity, which owned PayPal, and it was renamed PayPal. Then PayPal was bought by eBay in 2002, and from there, uh, he was worth 165 million dollars. This, this is a 30-year-old guy who, you know, comes out here from South Africa by way of uh, of Canada and doesn't know, you know, the ropes, but apparently. He was either making the ropes himself or he learned it pretty quickly. Because all of a sudden he had $165 million in 2002. And it was with that that he founded SpaceX, which is still privately held.
0: Now, it's very interesting. This is where Elon's life intersects with mine. So I've only actually met Elon Musk on one occasion. And that was at a dinner here in silicon valley that took place i think in 2003 2004 somewhere in that time frame it might have been a slightly later and it was a dinner where elon was there his brother kimball was there who's done a lot of entrepreneurship in the area of food and a variety of other folks and i knew about elon because of course i knew about paypal where i had known a number of the founders and early employees and i knew about zip 2 because i'd used it as a service before And at that point in time, there really was a lot of question in Silicon Valley and just in general, is this guy good or is he just lucky? Because with Zip2, he founded the company and was ousted by the board and was not involved by the time it was bought by Compaq, which made him rich. And with PayPal, he was CEO, but was shunted aside and really didn't have much to do with the success of the company. And in fact, for some time, I believe Peter Thiel actually resented him, although they've since made up, apparently billions of dollars are thicker than water. But at that point in time, here was a guy who had been ousted from two different companies, but which had been bought and had made him phenomenally wealthy. And it was unclear whether or not this was going to be a guy who was going to do something with his life or not. I mean, certainly he'd made this money, but was he actually going to be able to do something to find a company and stick with it? And of course, as it turns out, he went on to accomplish so many things that most people today don't even remember the first two companies that made him wealthy. So what did you make of him at the dinner? So I didn't spend a lot of time talking with Elon. He did not dominate the conversation that you might, the way you might expect based on the personality that he has today. It was just a a nice dinner. I actually spent more time talking with his brother, Kimball, because I think that that's where we were seated. And I stayed in touch with Kimball for a number of years after that. And I honestly didn't know what to make of him. Uh, He just seemed like a smart guy, but he didn't make a huge impression on me. And maybe that says something about my judgment. I don't know. But at the time, it just wasn't clear that this is where he was going to go. Well,
1: I think, um, uh, Your judgment is shared by a lot of other people. I mean, if you look at at what his schoolmates he went to school before college, that is uh, grammar school and secondary school uh, in South Africa, and if you look at what his classmates said about him, I'm I'm looking for some direct quotes here. None of them uh, uh, thought that he was um, he was on the road to riches and and fame. I mean, he he seemed Let's see. Uh, The consensus was that he was quiet and unspectacular. One student said, "Quote: There were four or five boys that were considered the very brightest. Elon was not one of them." According to another, this is a direct quote: "Honestly, there were just no signs that he was going to be a billionaire. He was never in a leadership position in school. I was surprised to see what happened to him." And it's interesting the way uh, this person puts it: "What happened to him?" Rather than what he did. Um, uh, and so, I mean, there you are, I mean, uh, today, certainly of, of, of the executives, uh, running important companies, he's, he's the last one to hide his li- light under a bushel, but, but he, apparently he, it was not at all apparent to, to, uh, people who grew up with him that he was going to be such a, a figure of such enormous importance in the business world. Well, let's talk about his childhood because there's a few interesting things there,
0: including what you just described, which was the fact that he didn't excel and shine as a youngster. My understanding is he also had a very troubled relationship with his father and that his parents were separated. And so it was a relatively turbulent
1: childhood. Uh, it wasn't very nice. Uh, his um, his mother, who I believe is, is still a model. Her she name is I've seen some of her television commercials. Oh, is that right, really? Her her name is M-A-Y-E, May uh, uh, Musk, uh, or that's not her maiden name. I can't remember her maiden name now. Uh, Thank you. You're quite right. Um, And uh, she, um, uh, I think she said that her her husband, Errol, married her for her legs and her teeth. That uh, reminds me, I I believe she said something like that. Anyway, uh, I think they were married from, uh, from um, be, during the 70s, basically. The uh, marriage obviously didn't last. Um, and uh, Elon had a brother, had and has, a brother and a sister, and um, also a half-brother and a half-sister. And he, uh, for a while, he lived with his mother, and then he lived with his father. And his father... He really came to, I mean, loathe is not too strong a word. I mean, uh, here here is a direct quote from Elon about his father. And I hope you don't mind my using the uh, F word. No, because no, that is fine. That's what Elon used. Um, uh, he, his, he described his father as, quote, good at making life miserable. He can take any situation no matter how good it is, and make it bad. I don't know, fuck, how someone becomes like he is. He was such a terrible human being. My dad will have a carefully thought out plan of evil. He will plan evil. So that's not what one would call a happy story. Not uh, at all. No, and and at school, meanwhile, he was bullied. Uh, not unlike Jobs, who was also bullied at school, But I'm kind of surprised that his parents put up with this, but uh, he, um, at one point, he was uh, chased around by a gang, Uh, and uh, at one point, he and his brother Kimball were having uh, uh, a bite to eat, sitting on uh, on top of a flight of stairs, concrete stairs. And uh, they attacked him. Uh, And uh, once again, this is a quote from him. This is how he describes his experience at school. Um, I was basically hiding from this gang that was fucking hunting me down for God knows fucking why. I think I accidentally bumped into this guy at assembly that morning, and he'd taken some huge offense at that. The guy in question kicked Elon in the head, pushed him down this flight of stairs where he was having a bite to eat with his brother, and along with his friends, beat him mercilessly. Elon lost consciousness. Um, Quote, they were a bunch of fucking psychos, he said. He was out of school for a week and eventually had to have some surgery. For some reason, this is quoting him, quoting Musk, they decided I was it, and they were going to go after me nonstop. For a number of years, there was no respite. You'd get chased around by gangs at school who tried to beat the shit out of me. And then I come home and it would just be awful there as well. It was just like nonstop horrible. That's his youth. Wow. That's absolutely horrendous. And
0: that ties in with something else, which was, it seemed like he escaped that terrible life. He was a fan of science fiction, He was a big fan of Isaac Asimov's Foundation series, which, by the way, Apple Plus is going to be producing a live-action television version of it in the near future. And he became somebody who retreated into computers, who retreated into books, and viewed these as his escape, his way out of this situation. And of course, as we know, he eventually escaped the country altogether, left, went to Canada against his father's wishes, and eventually made his way to America, which he viewed as a land
1: of opportunity. Yes, he was always uh, uh, very pro-American. Wanted to come here. Uh, he he did. Um, you put it quite well. He when he was a kid, he read ten hours a day. Well, and he had apparently superb comprehension and retention. And you know, if you read that long, I mean, that's that's one way of escaping human interaction. You're reading. And then uh, when he was 12 years old, he first got uh, um, uh, familiar with video games and he wrote one, um, let's see, uh, it, it started off with um, something called the Magnavox Odyssey, which was uh, an early, if not the first uh, gaming device, His family owned it apparently, and from there he went to, to Atari and then to Intellivision uh, and then he says, "And then I saw Commodore BC20. He was smitten, uh, and this is what he, these are his words again. You can actually have a computer and make your own games. I thought this was just one of the most incredible things possible. It came with a manual about how to program basic once again, like Bill Gates. you know Bill Gates was uh, a virtuoso on basic. I spent all night several nights in a row absorbing that. I was definitely obsessive you can type these commands and then something happens on the screen. That's pretty amazing. And when he was 12, he wrote uh, 167 lines of code for a space-based game called Blastar or Blastar, B-L-A-S-T-A-R, and sold it to a magazine in South Africa called PC and Office Technology for $500. Uh, He himself called it a trivial game, but it was not trivial for a 12-year-old kid to write 167 lines of code and sell the game he created to a computer magazine for 500 bucks in 1984. Apparently a a Google engineer has rebuilt this game and you can play it today on on your computer. Uh, I will
0: find it and I will put a link to it in the show notes.
1: B-L-A-S-T-A-R, it's an HTML5. Um, So anyway, uh, that's that, but that's the essence of it. I mean, here he is leading a chaotic life. His mother and father are divorced. Uh, his father is crazy, as, uh, or whatever. Uh, his mother is not that well adjusted either, from what one can gather. I don't know. Uh, I think she did care for him in a way that his father didn't. Um, and she said, you know, he would retreat into his books. At some one point, they they thought that he was hard of hearing, and they had his adenoids removed as a result of. That which had no effect on his hearing, and the problem wasn't his hearing. The problem was he just wanted to kind of escape the reality that he found himself in, and uh, and that he did. He did first by reading, and then by going into computers. And the wonderful thing about computers is that unlike human beings, they do what they're told. If you if you master software, you can make you can, you know, write something and it'll appear on the screen. And um, this sense of power. You see this now and again with people who had chaotic upbringings. I, does the name Bobby Fisher mean anything to you? Of course. Bobby Fischer is a
0: legendary U.S. chess master who was considered one of the greatest to ever play the game, but who also descended into mental illness and madness in the end.
1: Yes. Uh, and Bobby Fisher, my understanding is, had quite a chaotic upbringing. And he, when he found chess, he loved it because there were rules that couldn't be violated. A knight can only move in certain ways. A queen can only move in certain ways. And and that's, that's uh, that's I think, similar. Uh, when I read this about Musk, I, I found it similar to me. It to, uh, made me think of Bobby Fischer. Uh, and you, you can type those commands and they appear on the screen. and And this was, like, unbelievable to the guy. Now, this is really interesting because...
0: I think it starts to get to why it was that, that in that dinner in the 2000s, I didn't necessarily see the burning genius of Musk, which, of course, he actually is. He is certainly one of the most accomplished founders of all time at this point. He's on the league tables, as they would say in The Economist. And I think it's because of the nature of the things he was doing. So when he was running and Zip2 and X.com or building those up, those were traditional software companies. And the way you win at those software companies is not purely based on the technology you produce. We don't think of, the software companies and say well it's because their technology is better that they won." there's often things like network effects and other elements of strategy as well as the people management side of it that really become important but elon musk's great successes companies like tesla and spacex and we'll talk more about spacex these are hardcore engineering companies These are not companies where you just sort of say, well, the product is very similar to everyone else's product and there happens to be some network effects that cause it to become the leader in the field. Now, these are things where the product is definitively different, differentiated and superior to what came before. And maybe it's that desire for control, the attention to detail and that willingness to be obsessive that allowed him to succeed at the kinds of companies that he
1: succeeded at. It's also, um, uh, I agree with everything you just said, but I would, I would just hitchhike, if you will, on that, um, uh, and add that, that this was a man who, from early in life, was thinking very big. I mean, he asked himself, you know, what, what, what's the most important issues, what are the most important issues facing humankind and his answer—this was when he was still in college—were uh, the internet, sustainable energy, space exploration, the extension of life beyond Earth, artificial intelligence, and reprogramming the human genetic code. Now, you know, when I was in college, all I wanted to do was be an historian. I wasn't asking myself questions like this. And and when he when he invented Tesla, when he, when he didn't invent it, I'm sorry, but when when he got involved in it, and then finally when he became, you know, Mr. Tesla, he, it was the sky's the limit. I mean, there was, there was, it was, it was a, a fundamentally different car and, and a fundamentally different business model from an industry that was like 125 years old. And, 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 and he thought big and, and, you know, disappointed a lot of times, but at the end of the day, you know, go outside. There are a lot of Teslas driving around and the market capitalization speaks for itself. And the businesses that
0: Elon started, she didn't take the approach that is so de rigueur, the lean startup approach where you put a software product out and you pivot and you refine and you iterate and you get it to the point where it achieves product market fit. What set aside things like Tesla and SpaceX is and he's written about this and spoken about this. He approached them from the point of first principles and said if we were to reimagine this thing, whether it is cars or Rockets and we reimagined it from first principles so that we weren't beholden to the way things happen to have developed, where things gradually evolved and we ended up at a point where, you know, maybe some of the ways we do things don't actually make sense because they made sense in 1955, but they don't make sense now because technology's evolved, but we're still doing it because that's the way we did it back then. And he basically came in and built these companies more or less from scratch with a completely new approach that was. 10x better than what
1: had gone before, and and yes, and altogether different. Uh, he is now the leader in electric cars, and electricity is clearly uh, battery power is clearly the way that uh, the industry is moving. Uh, they've got thousands of uh, of. Um, charging stations now that they've built out. 13,000 is the number I've seen, but I've also seen the number 17,000, so I don't know how many they actually have. But one of the fascinating things about uh, Tesla is that when it started in in 2004, or or 2003, 2004, there weren't any charging stations. And as a matter of fact, Tesla has, because of Tesla, there is a new phrase in the uh, American language, range anxiety. How far can you go before you need to recharge? Um, And um, uh, the idea that you're going to have, you know, no no internal combustion engine, you know, in an automobile, Um, you know, Detroit is trying to copy now, you know, you tell me what you think their chances are of of catching this man. one One of the things that's astonishing to me about Tesla is Well, there was a discrete and and clear strategy, which I find impressive and very different from, to me anyway, the the philosophy of the late Clay Christiansen, my colleague at the Harvard Business School. Uh, Tesla disrupted from the top. I mean, the Roadster was very expensive and it had a lotus body. And then uh, the idea was to start at the top and work down with the profits that you made from selling at the top. The idea also was not to go through dealers. I mean, this is a revolution in, right. in, in the industry. So it's a revolution, not only in manufacturing uh, and in operations, but in marketing. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a completely different, I mean, when, when he was uh, on the Joe Rogan experience, that was where he smoked marijuana. Um, Rogan asked him, well, what, what is the Tesla exactly? And he said, it's not a car exactly. It's the most fun thing you can buy. It's a device for having fun or words to that effect. And that to a certain extent is how we've used the thing. And uh, there are an awful lot of buyers who seem to agree with them.
0: And what's interesting of course, is that Musk is the second automotive entrepreneur that we've covered during this series. The first being of course, the legendary Henry Ford. And when you picture these two you know, uh, at first glance, they are completely unlike each other, but then there are also some similarities.
1: So talk to me about how you view Musk and Ford. Well, the similarities are that uh, um, Musk is very detail-oriented. I mean, uh, his biographer, a man named Ashley Vance, who wrote a very good book on him, uh, I think was published back in 2015, uh, you know, pointed out that when he spotted a uh, a problem with the sun visor in a Tesla, he said it's fishlipped, and he could see the he could see the 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 little uh, nails or whatever it was that held the visor to the car. He said these are like daggers in my eyes. I want you to go out and find the best um, sun visor and then make it better. Uh, so there was a perfectionism. You know, he, it was legendary that when when they had to go through production hell for one of their models, he lived in the factory. And this is a man who, you know, can actually afford a very nice home. Uh, and um, so he's a very hard worker as Ford was. And he also is a visionary with regard to the Tesla, in a way that Ford was with regard to the Model T. I mean, he's, he's uh, Ford wanted to put America on wheels, he wants a, uh, Musk wants the automobile to be something that's fun and that basically is uh, uh, software on wheels. Um, it's all about the software. The Model T, of course, was all about the hardware. There wasn't any software in, in 1908 when the Model T was introduced. So a knowledge of the vehicle, uh, I think they both had. And uh, I, I think, I mean, from what I can gather, I know this was true of Ford and from what I can gather, it's true of uh, Musk—a love of the vehicle. It's not too strong a word. Biggest difference is from a strategic point of view. Ford started at the, uh, you know, at the he, he penetration priced. I mean, he got the, the Model T it was originally introduced in 1908 at 850 dollars a unit, and uh, soon it was down at 600, which was his original uh, target, and by 1924 it was down. I think under $300, you could buy a Model T for the price of a household refrigerator. Musk started at the top, much more like Apple, actually. And, and with the revenue that you got from that, funded um, less expensive cars, although you know, one of his models, I think, starts at 37.5, Chris, or some number like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is that if you buy that car, by the time you're finished with the add-ons, you've spent 50,000 bucks. These are not inexpensive cars. That's right. The
0: Model 3, which is intended as a $35,000 car, is in fact a $35,000
1: car if you don't bother to get the engine. Yeah, slight detail. Um, And um, uh, so um, the fact that he's been the beneficiary of government subsidies, you know, it does raise a question. You're, you're, You're subsidizing the purchase of a luxury vehicle which obviously is gonna only be made by rich people, you know, instead of sending out checks to poor people. I mean, it raises kind of an interesting question. And government support is a significant
0: factor in SpaceX as well. Obviously the government was his main customer and the government also provided significant loans to SpaceX and also provided significant loans to Solar City, which is a company that Tesla purchased. So, relationship oh. with the government have been important over the years to Elon Musk. Yeah, that was his, wasn't that his brother's company? His and cousin's company, but he Cousin. did buy it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And Tesla took it over, um, and there have been some complaints with, uh, I mean, Walmart, I think, sued Tesla at one point because their, their solar panels were catching fire. Minor uh, details. Yeah, not what you want. But, um, yeah. Uh, uh, he, um, you, you can look at their website, which by the way is beautifully designed, really is. Um, and then there's Solar City, and they, you know, they figured out a way that, you know, to, to, make, these, to make these look like related diversification, whether that's actually how the world works in Tesla. You know, I've not, I have not worked for the company and I don't know. I do think that there is an interesting question, to me a fascinating question, with regard to tesla and everything else which is that the turnover of first-class talent at that company is like nothing else in the valley in my opinion and so how you keep how you keep it going when you've got a revolving door i, I remember in 2018 the short sellers used to keep a list of high class, of high ranking executives leaving the company and when i was at apple which i was from 2010 to 2018 There were people who left Apple to go to Tesla and then either came back or left Tesla because they couldn't deal with Elon.
0: And I in fact have friends who shall remain nameless for their protection, who are high level executives here in Silicon Valley, who worked for Elon at Tesla and said, never again, Uh, we accomplished amazing things but never again, I refuse to work with him. Why? So he was so incredibly demanding to the point of seeming irrational about things, he would change his mind on a regular basis. His only devotion was to whatever he believed was going to be the right thing, even if it was different from what he believed before and even if it went against everything that the rest of the world said, this is how things should go. And that's really important when you're fundamentally reinventing something like the automobile. And we should talk about Tesla and SpaceX both. In greater depth, because what he accomplished there really is truly remarkable. But to accomplish those things, he had a level of conviction that borders on the fanatical, and was not paired with any sort of compassion and uh, manner of of really
1: treating people well. Well, so I still don't understand then how. Huh? I mean, this company has been in business for a long time. It uh, produces beautiful automobiles. You can't do that without a lot of talent. I mean, right. no one does that by themselves. And it's now, you know, it's got factories, I think now in Germany, uh, uh, here in Fremont and in China, and, and a battery, the Gigafactory, is is that in Nevada? And, in Nevada, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you can't do that without a managerial hierarchy. I mean, you've got to have people who, who who, not only know the technology, but who can do the finance that's involved in, in, a, in, a, in, a, uh, in an operation that's complicated. Well, yeah. let me give you a hypothesis. And I don't know if this is a hypothesis
0: is correct, but it'll give us something to talk about. So my hypothesis is this. With Tesla and SpaceX in particular, Elon Musk, set out to accomplish something that no one had ever accomplished before. Something that he believed, again, with that 1000% conviction was necessary to preserve humanity, to prevent the eventual extinction of our species. And that is a huge vision. That's a bigger, probably the biggest vision you could possibly have. We are going to start this company and it's going to save humanity. And he believes that mission with a thousand percent conviction. So he is the ultimate missionary when it comes to these things. And that missionary zeal, that ability to really convince people that this is the thing that mankind needs, is something that helps him recruit amazing people. But then the way he treats them is the thing that eventually drives them away. and But that may even be part of the overall plan on some unconscious level. To bring in great people who are attracted to the mission, to ride them so hard, as hard as he nearly, not as hard as he rides himself, but still very hard to the point where they burn out and they leave. But which allows him to increase the pace of innovation, allows him to move faster by basically burning these people up, burning out the relationships, burning out these people's well-being. He's able to move faster than he would otherwise be able to move. And he views it as justified
1: because this is towards the mission of saving humanity. Well, it's a, it, it's a very strange uh, human resource policy. And, um, you know, I, I don't understand how he's able, I mean, obviously he's able to do it. So, you know, because the evidence is, is before our eyes. But it's very impressive, we'll put it this way yes. that violating every rule that you can think of that any business school has ever taught about how you manage people. Uh, He seems nevertheless to have uh, had a um, continuity, enough of a continuity to, to produce these automobiles. Now, maybe he would have come out, you know, with these models more on time if he hadn't gotten rid of these executives. I don't know. I don't know.
0: And this is one of those interesting questions when we consider the challenge or problem of Elon Musk. Because as you put it, he's doing these things that, we would never teach at Harvard business school that go against everything that you learn in business. Uh, and yet this is arguably something that has helped them succeed, right? This incredible level of conviction, uh, which in some ways makes them seem a bit Jobsian, but perhaps even more extreme. Uh, uh, you can
1: argue more extreme. I, I mean, the, the, the electrification of the automobile fleet is, in my view, for what that's worth, simply vital for the survival of this planet. I mean, we're, we're, we're facing global warming. We're tending to forget about that because of the immediate miserable threat of the virus and because of the uh, extraordinary out, uh, racist outpouring uh, that we, we've all been living through. Uh, in the past uh, couple of months. Uh, but, you know, behind this all, is climate change. And uh, Musk has has done more about that than any other single individual that I can think of. I mean, there have been people who've written books, but there haven't been people who've produced cars that now have a company that's worth $270 billion. There literally
0: was a movie that someone made called Who Killed the Electric Car? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally. Because this was a famous project, General Motors, EV1. Yeah. Uh, it was a marvel of engineering that General Motors killed off and chopped up all the remaining prototypes, basically destroyed all symbol, all signs that ever existed. And this is something that had not worked for over 100 years. And here comes Elon Musk, and he does the impossible. Well, I
1: mean, uh, to... When we talked about Mary Kay, uh, we mentioned that um, her mother had said to her, you can do it, when she was seven years old, making dinner for her father when when her mother was not at home. And uh, that seems to be Musk's own signature for himself. You can do it. There's nothing that can stop me. And, uh, you know, that's remarkable. I mean, recently, as you probably know, I mean, he got into a, quite a a battle with the Alameda County uh, uh, executives because he wanted to open up the Fremont plant before they wanted him to. He'll fight anything.
0: Now, one of the things that is interesting is the fact that he is contemporaneous, right? He is active right now. And that means he's the first person in this series of leaders that we've considered who is active during the social media era? He is probably the biggest social media star among business people. You mentioned his many millions of followers, uh, the the Elon Musk uh, evangelists, the Elon Musk fanboys who are all over Twitter, constantly amplifying everything he does. To what extent is social media a key part of his charisma and the way he deploys it? It's very
1: important. Uh, you, you can't, you can't, I mean, one of the things that has made modern charisma possible is uh, the, the availability of social media. And if you use it strategically and he's, there's nobody better, um, you wind up with a brand loyalty, which a, any other automobile manufacturer in the world envies. I mean, those, those people who uh, are wedded to Tesla are wedded indeed. And um, that's, that's a very, very important part of the building of his charisma.
0: You know, an interesting thing, I have never actually driven a Tesla. And one of the reasons I did not is I had any number of friends who now own Teslas who told me, once you drive a Tesla, you never want to go back. To which my response was, I've heard the same thing about crack cocaine, so <laughs> I'm going to
1: pass. Uh, i Have never you driven one? No, I haven't. I've, served, I've been in them. Uh, the, the daughter of a very good friend of mine works for Tesla uh, and my friend owns one. It's a beautiful car. It looks like Apple because it was designed by people from Apple uh, and it's, it, it's a pleasure to drive. I mean, the reason that I haven't gotten it is because it's really more, it's more car than I need. You know, I don't really drive much and um, I, uh, I like smaller vehicles. So, uh, but, but you know, if they made a smaller one, I'd certainly consider buying
0: it. Well, I'm sure it's on the horizon. Hopefully we'll get a chance to test drive one together when Tesla brings out a smaller model that is actually affordable with an engine and when this pandemic is over. Now, the other company, he has many companies, but the other main company of his is SpaceX. And this is something where before we started recording, you mentioned you thought it was silly and I mentioned I thought it might actually have a greater impact than Tesla and it's rare that we have a disagreement. So I'm very interested in diving into that. Tell me about what you think about
1: SpaceX and what makes you think that it's a silly company. Well uh, I don't think uh, that the engineering and in fact scientific achievements of SpaceX are silly uh, and all the work that they did in Kwajalein and and uh, coming up with rockets that can land as well as take off. And I mean, that's all nice. Um, But behind this all is his Mars fantasy. He said that he wants to die on Mars, but not on impact. And uh, I think that that's, um, uh, not only do I think it's silly is the word, but I think it's, um, it's counterproductive to what he's actually doing with Tesla. I think that there isn't any planet B the human race is going to have to live or die on this planet earth tesla's making that more possible the idea that you you're going to be able to go to uh, a an environment which is as uh, as uh, hostile as that which exists on mars and and in any time you know within the next couple of hundred years and colonize it is um You know, I mean, it's the sort of thing that you used to see in popular science and popular mechanics back in the 1950s. Uh, There'd be cities under the sea or in Antarctica or something like that. Mars is a lot worse than the top of Mount Everest, yet there's no Cincinnati on the top of Mount Everest. uh, Moreover, in addition to everything else, uh, you're not going to be able to... to, Human beings are human beings, and if human beings are the people doing the colonizing, why are they going to be any different on Mars than they are here? So to me, it's just a big distraction, and it takes uh, his mind and the minds of others off the problems right here on earth, which are the ones that have to be confronted. We already mentioned, I mean, look at, look at, look at, look at the racism problem and, and think about it, and think about how, how dreadful it is and how, um, how much we need uh, understanding and progress and education on on this issue so the idea that you're going to go to Mars they're not going to be any problems uh, I mean it's it's uh, I mean to me it's silly now now uh, it's a privately held company uh, and for all I know he's making a fortune launching satellites and all the rest of it and, and so if that's if it's just a business and it's making him even richer than he is then you know more power to him but I think I think it's a distraction from solving the problems here on Earth. That's, put it this way, his Mars fantasy is. And insofar as the SpaceX Enterprise is a, um, an embodiment of the Mars fantasy, I think it's silly.
0: Well, let's talk about SpaceX from those two perspectives then. First, as a business, and then second, as one of these messianic missions that Elon Musk is wont to take up. From a business perspective, space itself is a fairly large market. The traditional commercial launch market is actually a substantial market. And SpaceX, thanks to building its product from the ground up for lowering the cost of launch, has a massive price advantage over all of its competition. So it would be as if uh, the let's call it uh, FedEx or UPS had the ability to charge one tenth of what its competition would charge and still make money. So as a result, SpaceX actually is a good business. And the interesting thing is if we apply the lens of blitzscaling, which says that we're looking not just at the present day market, but the future market, the question becomes How much larger does the space market become if the cost of launching things into space falls by a factor of 10 and then eventually by a factor of 100? Because let's face it, there is an unlimited amount of space. I mean, Earth is one planet and then there's the rest of the universe. There are asteroids that contain trillions of dollars of minerals and other resources that could potentially be used on Earth. And if SpaceX has effectively... The monopoly on getting into space, at least in terms of being able to do it on a commercially successful basis and having the lowest prices, that's enormously valuable. And that shows up in SpaceX's latest venture, which is Starlink, where Elon Musk said, Hey, you know, I've noticed that most of the satellites we launch are for telecommunications. What are the economics of that? How come they can afford to launch all these satellites? And his conclusion was, we'll just cut out the middleman. We'll launch 40,000 satellites into space and provide broadband internet to the entire world via our satellites. And because our launch costs are so low, we'll be able to do this and achieve full coverage of the planet faster than anyone else. Now, like most of these, magnificent, grandiloquent Elon Musk plans, there are many, many things that could go wrong. There are many issues such as, well, if we put 40,000 satellites into space, isn't that gonna contribute to the space junk problem? How are we gonna keep them from colliding with each other and the rest of the stuff that's up there? Is it going to ruin the ability to actually look at the night sky when you look up at the sky and instead of seeing stars, you see Elon Musk's satellite. So there are real issues there. But from a business perspective, SpaceX has the potential to be worth, I don't know, trillions of dollars because of the potential size of the
1: market. Well, go ahead. ahead. Please. No, I mean, you make a strong case, unsurprisingly, uh, for a Baker Scholar at the Harvard Business School. Um, And there's nothing that you've just said that I really disagree with, uh, except to say that, you know, maybe he if he had turned his... uh, his talents to say the manufacture of uh, honey graham crackers uh, and it found a, a way that you could make them at, at 10% of their present cost and learn to dominate the market. I mean, there's no question the guy can be a successful business executive. M- my problem with SpaceX is insofar as it is um, uh, connected to the Mars fantasy I mean, if, if, if what you're telling me is he's found another way to make a fortune, I, I believe it, but insofar as it takes away, as I say, I think it's almost the opposite side of the seesaw from Tesla, insofar as it takes away from solving the problems that we have here on Earth. Well, it, it gets
0: even worse than that, because in many ways, it's exporting those problems into space. So I'm going to take your side of the argument for the time being and talk about space colonization. If you think about space colonization right now, it is enormously expensive. Even with the technological advances that SpaceX is making, it's still going to be enormously expensive. Sending someone to Mars is colossally expensive. And so that means that people who go into space are either going to be the very wealthy or people who are hired by the very wealthy because the cost is so great that that's the only way it's going to be. And now all of a sudden, if we say space is the final frontier, a la Star Trek and there's all these opportunities out there, it will be yet another case of the greatest opportunities being reserved for the wealthy and for those whom the wealthy have
1: designated. Uh, Look, uh, to me, um, it's no more admirable than building a sailboat and competing for the America's Cup, um, which I think is also a waste of money. I mean, well, that's Larry at, Ellison's uh, big thing. That's right. But look at the problems that we're facing right now. We've got multiple crises right here on Earth. Uh, I wake up every morning. I look at Google News, and you know it looks worse every day. Uh, we may have to shut this our own state down again. The And this is where I give Gates such credit. I mean, here's a man who really has uh, tackled what is the most immediate problem that we're facing as, uh, as you and I are having this conversation and as, as trying to do something about it. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I just have a lot more respect for that than I do um, uh, making, making money, which he doesn't need at this stage of his life, sending uh, satellites to the air. I do agree that if you could have universal broadband and, and, and figure out a, an economical way to do that for everybody, that that's the kind of democratization of the, uh, of the computer age and of the internet that we really do need, especially since it's altogether possible that the whole nature of education is going to change. And a lot of it's going to be computer-mediated. And you don't want a world, you know, that doesn't have access to that. Uh, in addition to a world that does, uh, you want everybody to have access to it, uh, and and so if that's what you're telling me, I think that's just dandy. That's making the Earth a better planet to live on. Uh, but I, I think you know, I mean, maybe this, maybe I'm showing my age, but I think that um, that's what we've got to focus on. And insofar as SpaceX takes the um, focus away from that. I got a problem with it. insofar far as it actually contributes by making broadband possible, what have you, I'm all for it. As a side
0: note, I do think that
1: it would be very interesting, and
0: I don't know if this is in your plans or not, Richard, for us to discuss Bill Gates, who is a figure who gives the lie to... F. Scott Fitzgerald's statement that there are no second acts in American lives because he has had one of the most remarkable second acts of any great business leader in history.
1: Well um, I mean what what a what a a remarkable asset he is to this country right now and you know my hope is that uh, if we get a change in administration which um, we desperately need in November um, my hope is that the Democrats just give him all the money he wants and, 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 and says, look, you know, you were predicting in, in this famous TED talk of, you know, five years ago that something like what's happening now could happen. <clears throat> and the result of what that is, is that the hospitals are overloaded. Uh, we're not living the lives that we would like to live. And uh, uh, between 125,000 and 130,000 Americans have lost their lives, more than lost their lives in World War One. Um, he was focused on that well before everybody else was, um, and I give him immense credit uh, for being a, a public servant in the truest sense of the word. And uh, yeah, that that's that, uh, it would be a, that kind of growth that um, uh, is is very rare. It really is, and and much to be treasured. I think. Totally agree. And the final thought just
0: to close out on SpaceX is I think that the reason that Elon Musk considers it so important is he views it as an insurance policy. That we have this one planet, which we may screw up or which may be destroyed for reasons beyond our control. And that the sooner we get to the point where humanity is a multiplanetary civilization, the greater the chance that our species as a whole will survive. Now, that may sound like science fiction and in fact it has been the subject of many different science fiction stories over the years but as we described, as we said before it is no doubt something that Elon Musk believes 1000% is essential to the future of humanity whether he's right or
1: not we don't know but he absolutely believes it well you know uh he also had beliefs about those uh those people who were stuck in that cave in, in Thailand, you know, which were ridiculous. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, when he's right, he's very right. But when he's wrong, he's very wrong. And maybe he's, uh, may, maybe what you're talking about is the first step toward a whole new vista of uh, and vision of, of, of life. Uh, maybe it's just a waste of effort. I don't know. Tesla, I do know, is not just a waste of effort. I'm just immensely impressed by what he's done there. Well, what this
0: does though, is it throws a highlight on something we've talked about with a number of our other business leaders, which is the dark side of charisma. And there is no doubt that as you describe it, Elon Musk's charisma has a dark side. They are often, as you describe them, unforced errors but they definitely cloud his legacy to some extent, the behavior that he engages in, the way he gets into these public fights, the way he denigrates people, the way he treats people. How are we to evaluate somebody who has done so much good for the world and yet at the same time has done so many things that seem wholly unnecessary and yet hurt people? Well, that's true.
1: Um, I, you know, if you look at his personal life, His first wife, I guess his only wife, because I don't think he remarried. That's correct. Named Justine Wilson, who, from what I can gather, uh, once again I I never met her, but I read uh, a terrific article that she wrote called "I Was a Starter Wife," Um, and uh, uh, I just read what she had to say about about Elon. Uh, They had these two. uh, She and Elon had six children, I believe, together. And the first one, Nevada Alexander, uh, died a crib death. You know, a horrible thing, Um, horrible. And she uh, held him in her arms as he was dying. And uh, Elon just didn't want to talk about it. Uh, He he didn't sound like he was very uh, empathetic at all to to what she was going through. from what I can gather. Uh, so, you know, I mean, there there are people who love humanity but hate every individual human being. I'm not sure that's fair, a fair characterization of a man that I've never met. But um, uh, she himself, she herself, excuse me, Justine Wilson said words to the effect of, he doesn't do well in dark places. And, um, that, in a sense, is the dark side of his charisma. I guess he can get away without doing well in dark places. i got to tell you, there's a sadness natural to life, and there are plenty of dark places in it. And you got to do well there, too. And uh, so, you know, maybe you get a pass if you're charismatic and, and you can export those dark places to other people, but you can't live that way forever. Um, so, uh, but certainly, you know, abusive behavior toward you know, your employees, I mean, there's nothing good you can say about that, I don't think. No,
0: definitely not. But it does reveal something interesting. So first, I'll note that I have met Justine on a couple of occasions. I don't know her well. I do have a couple of friends who do know her very well. She is very thoughtful, as you could tell, from reading that article that she had penned about being a starter wife. And she's quite open about her experiences there. And, you know, they were college sweethearts. They met at, in college, when he was in college in Canada. And this is, again, one of those things where they have five, they have five surviving sons together. And yet at the same time, it seems like he was just an abusive husband, not physically abusive, but emotionally abusive. Well, she
1: used to, um, she used to say to him, "I'm, I'm, I'm not your employee. I'm your wife." And his response would be, uh, "If you were my employee, I'd fire you." Uh, and um, uh, when they were they were married near two thousand, my recollection is. And right. when they were dancing at the wedding, he said, uh, "I'm the alpha in this relationship. Just keep that in mind." And that's not what one would call a really romantic thing to say. I mean, I, I guess she learned what the difference was between being wooed and being won, because he was the one, I mean, he was, he was after her. He described her, uh, and these are his words, as the hot chick on campus uh, at Queen's University in, in Ontario. And she said, you always knew when he was calling, because the phone would not stop ringing. That, these were the days when such things were a statement. You could make a statement like that with phones. Um, and uh, she said, you know, he simply pursued me and pursued me and said, it shall be mine. And finally I gave in. Um, but she, uh, she's, I mean, from what I can gather, very impressive. And I certainly hope that the uh, whatever custody arrangement they have with those children is working out to the benefit of the children. I hope that it is. Uh, interestingly enough,
0: Elon and Justine sent their sons for some time to my alma mater, the Merman School for Gifted and Talented Children, down there in Southern California, until at some point Elon decided he could do better and created his own school. Oh, good God! So that uh, that tells you everything that you need to know. Now, I do think that this is really interesting. There is a parallel here between Elon and his father. And given how much he hates his father, I'm not sure he'd like this parallel. But Elon's father pursued Elon's mother. Elon's mother was a competitor for Miss South Africa. Mm -hmm. She was a famed beauty, and of course a model for over 50 years. She's appeared nude on a number of, of magazines like Time Magazine, for example. And Elon's father pursued her and was a terrible husband. Here he is, he pursues Justine, wins her, then immediately tells her, but guess what, I'm the alpha. And I don't know how he can view his father's behavior in one way and then not even consider that his own behavior might be an echo of that.
1: Well, uh, that might be a truly frightening thought for the man. I mean, I don't know. I I I read somewhere that his father had a a child when he was 71 or 72 years old um um and his father doesn't from what I can gather you know was not the kind of person that you'd want to have dinner with but um uh he's obviously uh, also a very talented man i mean there's a hell of a lot of talent in that family all five of them i mean the father the mother and the, and the three kids As we think about some
0: of the leaders we've considered, it's interesting, we see that charisma in the workplace and charisma at that large scale doesn't necessarily imply that the person's charisma applies at the smaller scale within their own family. Uh, We've seen people like Sam Walton, who by all accounts was a fairly beloved father. Uh, I don't remember there being a lot of tension between him and his children.
1: No, certainly a beloved husband, I can tell you that.
0: And then you have somebody like Steve Jobs, who famously has fraught personal relationships, uh, a very distant relationship with his first daughter, Lisa Brennan Jobs. And again, it's you wonder what's going on here. How does somebody have the ability to be so charismatic to earn the admiration of millions, and yet at the same time, being incapable of having good relationships with the people closest to them.
1: That's, look, that's part of, the, part of the riddle of charisma. You've put your finger right on it.
0: And charisma, again, it, it's really about inspiring. And we've talked a little bit about the intersection of uh, charisma and credo and culture. Yes, and you had mentioned, why would people work for someone like this? Why would they go work in an environment which is abusive, which is so stressful? And yet, isn't that what we would say about the various cults that exist, where there's a charismatic leader, where living within that cult, whether it is the Manson family or David Koresh or any of these other figures, is somehow enormously compelling to those
1: people who join those cults? Uh, I think... Um... That people want meaning in their lives, and uh, saving the human race—I mean, that—that that is a reason to get up in the morning. I mean, it, it makes a lot more sense than monetizing hate the way Facebook does, or uh, you know, whatever. Uh, and 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 if you—if that's what you want to do, I mean, if you're if you're truly um, uh, a crusader you you can you could argue that you know electrifying the the uh the the fleet of automobiles in the world what could be more important and uh you know maybe you're just willing to take a a lot more of a of an interpersonal beating because the goal is so self-evidently uh valuable um that's you know it goes back to Steve Jobs talking to John Scully and whatever it was 1982 or 83, um, it was earlier than that uh, when he said uh, you know do you want to do you want to uh, spend the rest of your life selling sugared water Scully was working for Pepsi Cola or do you want to change the world? It's this idea of making a dent in the universe. It's this idea of making not just money but meaning. That's what the charismatic leader is able to do, and that's how the charismatic leader glues a company together.
0: Final question and any final thoughts you want after that. Final question is when we talked about Henry Ford, you said if he had passed away the day after announcing the $5 day, he would have gone down in history, universally beloved, universally admired, but he lived on long after that. And over the course of that period, Things like his virulent anti Semitism and his unwillingness to change ultimately clouded his reputation and clouded his legacy. What do you think is going to happen with Elon Musk? Elon Musk is not quite 50 years old. He's going to be 50 shortly. And he probably has a lot
1: of years in front of him. What do you think is going to happen? Well, I can tell you what I hope. Uh, And my hope is he turns into a second Bill Gates. Um, I wouldn't bet the ranch on it, but if you had told me that Bill Gates was going to become the Bill Gates he is now uh, in 1985, I wouldn't have believed it then. So um, uh, I think that, you know, there's an old saying to those to whom much is given, much is expected. And now he's earned what he's gotten, but he's also been given a great deal and I hope that he gives back, in the sense that Gates is doing, because you know, from from the point of view of brain weight, <laughs> this 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 man is a man a national treasure. Um, from the point of view of attitude, that's that's a different uh, a different kettle of fish. But that's 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 uh, that would be a hope. You know, I don't know. I mean, Henry Ford was not able to make that transition. Um, if you look at historical characters, I mean. Uh, Steve Jobs and Abraham Lincoln, both died from a dramatic point of view at the perfect moment. Um, Jobs died uh, when he was, uh, he had a a beautiful family, he had a company that had, he had literally brought back from the dead. Uh, Lincoln died when he had uh, freed the slaves through the passage of the 13th Amendment and uh, the Constitution, The war was won, basically, not completely, but basically it was. He had been to Richmond, sat at Jefferson Davis's desk, um, and he died without ever actually having to face the problems of reconstruction, which were very severe and dangerous and difficult. So from a dramatic point of view, it was, you know, I mean, from the point of view of national welfare, losing Lincoln then was catastrophic, but... um, you know, the odds are if you're 50 and and this disease doesn't kill you, you know, uh, what's his life expectancy? It is till about 80 or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. I mean, that's a long time. We're talking about the year 2050. Um, who knows what's, what the world will look like then? What new uh, challenges will be thrown up? And, um, you know, I, I'd like to see public service uh be part of, uh, in, in the way that Gates is doing, be part of his agenda, I guess. So that's a wish. We'll see what happens.
0: Well, Richard, thank you very much for taking the time to walk through and consider the life and times of Elon Musk. I do think that when it comes to the Second edition of You Can Do It, after the book has come out, become an international bestseller. I'll be very curious if the second edition revisits
1: Elon Musk and updates what has occurred in the years since then. Well, uh, the first edition isn't out yet, so I'll take it one step at a time.
0: Richard, thank you so much for joining me here today. And I am looking forward to our next conversation and our next charismatic leader. Thank you. I am too.